Welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. This is your host, Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor, and board member. Today, we will feature the book, Range, by David Epstein. Our guest today is Neeta Gupta, SVP GM and growth advisor. Neeta serves as board advisor at private companies, Mintech Limited, and Prognos Health. She is also a board director at the Keo Project, a nonprofit focused on gender equality and the co-founder of the American India Foundation Young Professional Groups, where she was a past board director. Welcome, Meeta, to 10X Growth Strategies podcast. Thank you, Preeti. Very happy to be here. Tell us about yourself, your current role, and past highlights from your career. Absolutely. Happy to do so. Uh, just by way of background, I'm a Midwesterner that was transplanted to New York City, and, and I've been in Manhattan for the last uh, 25 years or so. And I started my career essentially as a management consultant with A.T. Carney. They're now called Carney. And subsequent to that, I, spent, I have spent nearly two decades uh, with deep experience in starting up and building high growth businesses uh, with a strong focus on B2B services and technology, global expansion and digital transformation. I was part of the, uh, as part of that two decades, I was part of the founding team at a company called Procurian, which was a procurement outsourcing services company. And then I spent uh, nearly a decade at GEP, which is a procurement and supply chain services and technology company, growing that company 10X uh, to hundreds of millions in revenue, expanding service and product lines and driving international expansion across EMEA and APAC, as well as North America. And most recently, I was appointed senior vice president at Globality, which is a B2B services marketplace. And as you mentioned, I'm also serving as a board advisor at Prognos Health, which is a health tech company, and at Mintech Limited, which was recently bought out by a PE firm, and it's a data intelligence company. It's amazing to see the broad range of experience you have. And I love the mention of 10x growth. Uh, it's exciting to hear about that too. I didn't have to make that up. That was, uh, that's why I love the title of your podcast. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, we are here to talk about the book Range that you recently read. Why did you choose to read the book? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It piqued my interest uh, actually several years ago, and it took me some time to get around to reading it. But I've always believed in the value of generalists, and that is the premise of, of the book, um, essentially. But a lot of the prevailing books and experts were focused on the concept of intense specialization, especially like in fields of medicine, finance, music, sports. Um, the 10,000 Hours by... Malcolm Gladwell, that rule really meant you had better get started on focusing on your specialty right away. Uh, you have the grit scale from Professor Angela Duckworth, which that scale actually deducts points for changing your interests. Amy Chua, who's the author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, she discusses stereotypically successful children, where there were, her children, for example, were assigned instruments at very young uh, ages. Um, and, and as I read in another uh, publication, it all amounts to a tidy prescription for success. Pick and stick as early as possible. 
but I'm not sure I necessarily agreed with all of that. So I wanted to understand David Epstein's theory. And when I think about my career, as you mentioned, I have really continued as a generalist uh, in the sense that I've worked across multiple industries. I've worked across multiple functions. So this topic of range and having a broad sampling continues to be of interest and having an entire research-driven book that was written on the topic uh, was very timely for me. I cannot agree more with you. I, I too am a generalist, uh, having worked across engineering, product, marketing, yeah. sales. Uh, so that does make a big difference in terms of how you can approach your career. Uh, and I'm glad there is a book about it. I'd love to hear what are your top takeaways from the book range? Yeah, so there are so many. I have to say this book was incredibly well researched by, by the author. But in terms of the key takeaways, so the first takeaway is this notion of having a sampling period. An early sampling period is better than a focused head start. So don't be afraid to quit. One of the examples that the book starts with in terms of this takeaway is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is that quintessential example of, I think his father put a, a golf club in his hands at the age of maybe seven months. And you know, he was swinging by the age of two. And we all know he was a prodigy and the best in the world by age of 20, you know, 21. And that's a great example of the 10,000 hours rule. But then you have someone like Roger Federer. Roger Federer is one of my favorite athletes who actually did play a lot of different sports. And it was later, not at seven months or at two years old, that he decided to focus uh, on tennis. So that first takeaway, this notion of, hey, it's okay to sample. It's okay to take a little longer to find your passion and interests. It may take a little bit longer, but the advantage that comes from being a generalist or, for, or from having done this sampling ultimately can lead to more innovation, lead to more creativity, and ultimately to more financial return as well. The second takeaway that I had, and this was a real, this was a very, very new learning for me, is there is a concept called the kind world and there is the wicked world. And David Epstein talks about this in the book, but these are terms that were used by a psychologist named uh, Robin Hogarth. But a kind learning environment is one where patterns recur. It's like chess, it's like golf, they're very rigid rules. Uh, the feedback that you get is very timely, it's immediate. There are ways to do things and there are ways not to do things. So the feedback is quick and it is often 100% accurate. But a wicked world is where it's very unpredictable. Feedback may be delayed, it may be infrequent, it may be non-existent. And we live much more in a wicked world. And in fact, I would argue that the next decade is gonna be the wickedest <laughs> that perhaps many of us have seen in our lives in terms of the unpredictability. We're gonna to have to take the concepts or the learnings that we know across multiple areas, multiple subjects, and use those learnings to figure out how to act or react, um, especially in, in business and, and growth and high growth businesses, which is my world and uh, which is certainly the topic of the podcast. So this notion of there are kind worlds where uh, repetitive activities like chess and golf, and in some cases, music, uh, that can work. But in many cases, we're in a wicked world, which is unpredictable. And the third takeaway that I had was 
this isn't actually a new notion, but while the book really focuses on generalists and uh, sampling and so forth, the world still needs both vertical thinking specialists and lateral thinking um, generalists. You need both that narrow specialization and broad experience, I think, for uh, success. So the, uh, the, the notion here has become a T-shaped person. A T-shaped person has both a broad range of knowledge, which is sort of represented by that top part of the T, and a, and a deep specialty in one area or maybe multiple areas, but the world still needs both for success. And, and the last comment I'll make is, this isn't necessarily a takeaway, but if anybody listening to this really does read the book, there are such interesting stories and examples of people that we never uh, would have thought of. Folks like Duke Ellington in music, Vincent van Gogh, such a famous painter, um, Claude Shannon started, this is the inventor of binary code, started as a, as a philosophy major. So many folks that we really only know about the pinnacle of their success, but they have stories behind that where, where they really did sample or try different subjects um, or different uh, types of drawing or painting before really landing on their, on their specialty. So um, yeah, those, are, those would be my top three takeaways from the book. Really solid takeaways there. And I'd love to unpack some of them, mm -hmm. especially the, let's start with the first one. You talked about how some people like Tiger Woods had early specialization and Roger Federer had a chance to sample. One of the things that uh, David Epstein talks about is that uh, to become excellent, don't specialize early in life, experiment with many different paths. We'd love to hear your story. What are some paths you chose for your career journey and why? Sure. In undergrad, ultimately, I was a BS in economics and I took a very business-driven path. But my freshman and sophomore year, I was still thinking about you know, whether I wanted to do a medical career. I took lots of science courses, but in taking those courses, realized that was not a path I wanted to follow. And, and then really focused on, uh, on the business path. Subsequent to undergrad, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I actually went to law school. I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. Probably within six months of starting law school, I realized this was not my calling. It, it, was, it was not something that was making me passionate uh, every day. And so I actually took a leave of absence from law school. And uh, I ended up never going back. I, I chose a completely different path. So you could say I'm a proud law school dropout. But I began work then for a learning and development consultancy that was started by some of my ex-professors, my ex-Wharton professors. And they focused on delivering training programs to Fortune 500 mid and senior level managers. And they were a forerunner of, of creating business simulation. So that was almost you know, one of the first times that I really applied generalist concepts because we were training across um, how do you run a business and running simulations to see how different decisions would impact uh, a business. And then I sort of continued as a generalist after my MBA at Kearney because I was a generalist practitioner. We had consultants that were very focused on whether it was financial services or operations, but I was working across a gamut of clients across the Fortune 500 many different um, industries as a generalist. And then ultimately, as I'd mentioned over the last two decades, my career, which is focused on, B, uh, on the B2B space, I've worked across so many different industries, whether it's pharma, life sciences, um, uh, oil and gas, uh, banking and financial services. And so I feel that 
I have gained, it, it's sort of that T-shape, a broad um, sampling, if you will. And then ultimately I did go deep into B2B business growth and in the area of procurement and supply chain that just happens to be you know, where I've focused in terms of the companies um, that I've been with. But I, yeah, so I think it's a nice example and I could read the book and really relate to some of those concepts that David uh, Epstein was trying to lay out. I can relate to that too. I certainly, after the first time, they told me to dissect a frog and I knew that was not the path I was gonna go for sure. And uh, so biology was ruled out. It's very interesting to hear that you also went the path of uh, law and decided to not take that. It's, it is an example to me having lived the experience. You know, one of the takeaways that I said, that first takeaway, it's, it's good to sample and it's okay to quit. And that is inherently, I think in a lot of us, not a concept <laughs> that we like to uh, enact or face, but, but in quitting the law school, which is ultimately what I did, that very proactive decision, that was actually one of the best decisions that I had made in my life. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, And at the time of doing it, it can be tough. It can be painful. It can also be you know, you're sort of going into the unknown, but by sampling these different things, whether it's dissecting the frog or for me taking some of those science classes or having spent a year in law school, it sort of validates then that, you know, I, this path is not working out, but this is another path that uh, either piques my interest, whether it was our education or in building businesses in terms of pivoting different strategies. Um, sometimes you have to fail to, or quit, I should say, to find out the right path. Exactly. Yeah, very good point. I was also intrigued by this other point that the book mentioned, which is you will be better at innovating when you have a breadth of experience. Mm. Can you share examples from your career? I can. Before I do that, I want to share one example from the book. I just loved this story which really hits on this point. And then I'll share an example from, from my own uh, career. But there is a gentleman named Gunpei Yokoi, whom I had never heard of. And this is in Japan, this gentleman, this is in the 60s, I believe. He didn't score well on his engineering college exams and basically had to settle for a low-level machine maintenance job at a playing card company in Kyoto. But being an engineer, he was a tinkerer, played around with different things. And while he wasn't at the cutting edge of tech development, he had access to a lot of different information. He had access to that um, information easily and he could combine things that specialists couldn't see. Ultimately, being in a toy company, if you will, he combined technology from a calculator industry, combined technology from the credit card industry, and he created a small handheld game that anybody can take in their pocket anytime, anywhere. It was very old technology, but he figured out how to put it together and that became the Game Boy. And that company was Nintendo. And I loved that example because this guy that sort of came in as a machine maintenance job, no one would have thought of him as a researcher developer of, of, of the games. And that became the pinnacle of the company. And you know, we all know Nintendo. So I love that example. Now, I'm not sure I have anything as, as compelling as, as that. But in my own career, I do think this concept has likely shown up in big and small ways over the decades. But one example is when I was with Procurian, the company that myself and others uh, co-founded, we started as a technology company. We were going to put the world's transactions onto our technology platform 
and, and, and be the biggest platform of the world managing all the spend uh, in the world. Uh, that, that was gonna be the story. Um, but after three to four years, we realized that that model, for lack of a better phrase, was ahead of its time. I can say that in hindsight. And we needed to pivot strategies in order to keep the business alive, in order to, to be efficient with our funding and so forth. So we pivoted strategies and ultimately we became what we would call today, we became a tech-enabled services company that was providing procurement outsourcing services. Now, many of us had come from a generalist consulting background. We had, we had been in the procurement and supply chain space, and we could see how technology works, we could see how services work, and we could see how there was a huge amount of value in this notion of procurement outsourcing across many different verticals and globally. So we had a market that needed tapping. We were at, actually became a forerunner, a front runner in that space, and grew the company, ultimately sold it to, to Accenture. But... When I think about how we put together sort of our broader experiences and how we could pivot strategies to something that could be successful, I think that was a great example. Again, maybe not as uh, exciting as the Game Boy, but it was something that allowed us to rethink the company and then grow it to a point in a stage where we were able to sell the company, which was really our private equity investors' you know, main goal. But along the way, we created a new category. We signed amazing Fortune 500 uh, clients and helped them save hundreds of millions of dollars, which essentially went to their bottom line. And for these public companies, that could mean half a point or a point in shareholder value. So it was ultimately, in my view, and I'm biased, but it was a very value-add uh, pivot that was based on our collective sampling and knowledge of of the space, but also of, of, of different industries and what could be of value. Well, that's a wonderful example, both from Nintendo and from your own background. And you did mention that uh, you were able to generate the 10x growth. Uh, and so that certainly is a great story for this podcast uh, yeah. with being able to innovate with that breadth of experience you talked about. I'd also love to understand how does a wide range of experience increase your chances at success in whatever field you're in? I think generally, well, certainly in my world, working with Fortune 500 companies, working with Fortune 1000 companies, most of them being public companies, having an understanding almost on a daily basis of macroeconomic forces occurring globally, regionally, locally, having a pulse on uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, understanding which public companies are feeling cost or margin pressures, just having this range of knowledge, which really for you and I means being abreast of the news or you know, understanding what's happening in the business section of whichever your, whatever your news sources, news sources are. I mean, that to me is almost the simplest example of having a wide range of sort of knowledge and experience that you can apply to your success. Because again, in, in my world, we're driving growth that has to do a lot with landing clients, designing appropriate solutions for clients so that they're signing contracts, signing deals, and that we have long-term uh, customers. And what I have found is that the more knowledgeable I am or my team is about what's happening across a broad range of subjects that can impact these public companies, 
our services that happen to be in that procurement and supply chain space becomes very valuable to be able to talk about the stories that are impacting them and then tie our services and our technology, how it's going to help them drive efficiency, how it's going to help them uh, optimize operating expenditures, OPEX, uh, or drive more savings uh, to their bottom line. That's how I think about the answer to that question. In some ways, it seems simplistic, but I would also say in my experience, I really do think that there are fields where folks stay, stay so specialized. They, they know a heck of a lot about their specific uh, field, whether it is a specialty in medicine or specific areas or finance, but they may not then do, do the research or stay abreast of other topics. So that's, that's sort of my experience. And I think also in the book, it was generally researched and, and David Epstein mentioned this, that when it comes to business, the success, successful executives are those that have worked across a number of functions. You and I, you touched on this at the beginning of the podcast, but having the exposure to sales, to marketing, to customer success, uh, product management, and being able to connect the dots then to an overall customer experience or to an overall growth strategy, I think these things are very, very important to being a successful executive, whether you're CEO, CXO, CMO, whatever that, that function may be. Um, and then if I tie this all back to one of those takeaways that I had that we are operating in a wicked environment. And so nothing is predictable. So really, in this case, knowledge is power. Having more knowledge across different, different areas then best equips you or your company, your organization to, to act or react, depending on whatever the situation may be. Very well said. I think that really motivates people who are listening to this podcast to think about how they can broaden their experience uh, so that they can better understand their customers, their audience, and prepare uh, better uh, for being able to serve them. I think it's very well put. Meeta, the book shares that the more famous you become for being an expert in one area, the more likely it is that you will be terrible at making accurate predictions about your field. That's very interesting. Can you elaborate? I can. I will say my first reaction was this is an extremely provocative statement and certainly the antithesis of what any of us would think. And Again, my perspective of where this um, thought, this concept is coming from is because of that person or that specialist, very narrow focus, they tend to have fixed or explicit theories about how things should work, which oftentimes will then lend themselves or itself to cherry pick the evidence or cherry pick the data points that you want that support your existing beliefs. I, I don't think this happens you know, with every specialist, but in, in the book, this was how I interpreted it. And there's sort of two examples, one that I wanna give from the book and then one that I'm seeing uh, play out in front of our lives as we speak. But the, the one um, example that was given in the book, and it truly was a catastrophic example, is the space shuttle Challenger. And as we all know, sadly, that space shuttle exploded 73 seconds into its flight. Probably we may have watched it live. And it was due to the malfunction of these O-rings. And I still remember when they said this on the news, most of us have no idea what an O-ring was, but those NASA scientists certainly did. And it was the cold temperature of that day of the launch that caused that malfunction of, of, of these O-rings. 
And the interesting thing is that this information of how temperature affects the O-rings was available for the NASA folks, but they didn't have it at their fingertips. The different specialists that were brought to the call about whether to launch or not, they were focused on their own areas and they didn't have data that suggested, you know, whatever the temperature, cold temperature was that day was gonna lead to this. And the NASA culture was also such that, hey, if you don't have data, then don't bother dissenting, don't bother discussing. And they made the decision to launch. And we all know how that ended up. And there have been actually several documentaries on this. Now that's a very draconian and a very catastrophic example, but I think it lends itself to why, you know, these scientists cherry pick the data that they saw to support their, um, their decision to launch. But I think there are other examples. And for me, the most recent one is what we're seeing in our economy, actually globally, but certainly in the US, UK and so forth, having to do with inflation, the inflation challenge. Our Federal Reserve here in the US um, in 2021, I'm sure you'll remember this, was convinced that inflation was transitory and would not have any lasting impact. Well, here we are at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, and we can see that this prediction was wildly off base. And the Fed was taking learnings from the Great Recession that happened you know, back in 2008 and 2009 and applying principles from that time period and sort of picking and choosing what they were seeing to say, you know, inflation is transitory because of X, Y, Z reason. And really, it's completely different dynamics this time around as to what is causing it's the supply chain, the supply side shock of things, which is not at all what happened in 08 and 09. So I think this is almost a, I mean, again, not a fun example, but it, it is an example of that siloed thinking of creating uh, blinders, if you will, which didn't allow for a broader view of the situation and the need to take different actions, more varied actions and taking actions sooner. Hindsight's always 2020, and, and, and I'm certainly not the, uh, the lead economist, but I think that's an interesting example of how being so, so specialized and seeing the data that you have in front of you that you want to support your theory, how it's played out in our, uh, in our Fed's um, handling of, of the inflation situation. Great examples, uh, both from uh, the space as well as from the economy area. And it almost leads me to talk about the systems thinking, uh, where you're looking at a more broad way of how you assess things, uh, and uh, that being a core for making better decisions. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think it is important to, to kind of recognize that, you know, we shouldn't make one broad draconian statement that the more specialized you are, that it will lead to bad decisions. I think it's important to be aware that you might have that deep specialty, but again, there's so many different factors in this wicked world that can impact um, any given situation. And so, hey, bring in other specialists or bring in generalists and have a broader thinking around whatever the problem at hand is, the problem to solve is. Excellent. Well, it was wonderful to hear your thoughts about the book Range Mita. Any final insights for our audience? You know, in the book, there was a, a quote that was brought to my attention. We all know this quote, being a jack of all trades and a master of none, which sometimes is viewed as, as, as not a good thing. 
But the actual full quote is, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And I loved that because again, I didn't know that. And I think most of us do not know that. And I thought, wow, that summarizes this, this sort of concept of range. It summarizes being a T-shaped person so well. And, um, and that the, the breadth of training and the breadth of sampling that you have can predict the breadth of transfer of knowledge to, to other areas. So I think overall, perhaps in closing, you know, we live in a wicked world. There are very few environments that exist anymore that are kind environments, certainly in high growth businesses uh, and in business in general, it's a very wicked and predictable unpredictable world, but we need generalists and specialists to be successful. Great way to close. Uh, thank you, Mita. It was wonderful having you. Thanks for taking time. Listeners, Check out the book Range by David Epstein. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Preeti.